Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. It is a system of thinking, and so it can show up anywhere. It can show up anywhere where you function, where you feel like you have to be qualified to do something. Um, And I think it can show up anywhere. And oftentimes it does show up in multiple domains of your life. What happens? Yeah, I think think you go into what's called the imposter syndrome cycle. So you you don't experience imposter syndrome like 100% of the time. You're typically triggered for it. And typical triggers are anything new, things that are complex where there are many places to go wrong, things where you feel rusty, um, things where are highly visible. Um, and so you get triggered. As a result of that trigger, you either do one of two things. You get, well, you get performance anxiety and then you either over-function or you self-sabotage. And what self-sabotage looks like for people with imposter syndrome typically is procrastination followed by intense short bursts of overwork. And so we get, we typically get the thing done because we're high performing, but we do it in very intense periods and that often leads us to burnout as well. We then get a performance review or review of whatever we've done. It's usually positive because we're, we're typically competent, um, but we don't bother to internalize it. We typically will dismiss the compliments sort of saying like, um, oh, it wasn't really me or it wasn't that big of a deal or what, mi- minimizing it or, or putting it on other people. Or we get some negative feedback or some constructive feedback and then we hyper-focus on the constructive feedback, vowing never to do that ever again, and kind of getting caught in the cycle all over again. So that's typically what it looks like. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Live Boldly podcast with Sarah Shelton Kranz. This is an inspiring podcast for those seeking proven ways of healing, growing, and transcending their lives. I'm a legendary leader in healing, acclaimed author, keynote, and TEDx speaker, a mom, an adventurer, and a believer in all things possible. My mission is to guide others to live their life boldly, regardless of circumstances. I believe we all have the power to overcome and lead joy-filled, happy lives. Recorded from the trail or in my office, every other week I share inspiring stories from everyday people because we all deserve to be heard. You will also hear from hand-picked professionals ready to guide you beside me. Are you ready? Let's do this. Who plays out the narrative of your own story? Who writes it? Who is in charge of it? Who's the author? The editor? Who's the person who uh, can change it? Can write new chapters, delete what you feel like, and um, add on where you feel called. And so I will say that that is you. And you hold the pen and don't hand your pen away. You hold the pen. So make sure that you are writing it so that when you are looking back, you can be really proud of the story that you wrote. And it's one that will live on forever because you impact so many people. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Live Boldly podcast with Sarah Shelton Kranz. Go grab your journals. Today we are talking imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is something that 70% of people experience. If you don't know anything about this, you are going to be blown away. Today I have on Dr. Orbe Austin. She is a psychologist, executive coach, organizational consultant, and speaker. She earned her doctorate in counseling psychology from Columbia University. 
Her views about imposter syndrome, career advancement, leadership, and diversity and inclusion are regularly sought by the media, and she has appeared in outlets such as The New York Times, NBC News, Forbes, The Huffington Post, Refinery29, Business Insider, and Insight into Diversity. She's also been honored as a top voice on LinkedIn in the area of job search and careers. Her book, Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life, co-authored with her partner, Dr. Richard Orbe-Austin, was released in April of 2020. The book was a finalist for the 2020 Forward Indies Book Award, and their second book, Your Unstoppable Greatness, Break Free of an Imposter Syndrome, Cultivate Your Agency, and Achieve Your Ultimate Career Goals, will be released, uh, I believe she said in December of this year. Did you know that there's a paper shortage? I did not realize that. I learned that on this podcast. So here's the thing. I want you to listen to this podcast and identify where in your life that you may have imposter syndrome. I know I have experienced it in my own life and really being able to get to the root of the nugget of what caused it and then being able to go through my own process of forgiveness for the person, actually people, that uh, projected their story onto me and unfortunately then for times in my life, I made that my story. And the whole thing with imposter syndrome is that when we are making untruths our story, when we are believing things about self that are not ours that we truly believe in within the internal space of ourself, right? When we start to believe something that is actually an untruth, it can develop into a story that is extremely toxic and unhealthy and can hold us from living our best life. So that said, go grab your journal and really listen to where in your life that you have been experiencing imposter syndrome, where you're not living in your greatness because of this. You're not stepping into the best version of self because the imposter syndrome is holding you back from really being who you are meant to become. Before we dive into this, though, I want to remind you that we do have only three retreats in the Grand Canyon left. I know, blowing me away, too. So we have over Thanksgiving of this year, and then we have two of them in January of 2023. Unfortunately, the Grand Canyon is there. Well, they need to, so I shouldn't say unfortunately, but they are redoing the entire water pipeline throughout the Grand Canyon. uh, And so they are shutting services at the bottom indefinitely. And so that said, as you all know, I am also stepping into speaking more, which is very exciting for me and doing more corporate work. And so this is creating a space um, that is really opening for different areas of my own life. Now think of it this way. If my imposter syndrome had taken hold, you would not find me on stage because a part of my story that I'd held on to was that I was not good enough. And so that story, what I realized had nothing to do with me and had everything to do with the people that were projecting it onto me. It was their belief of self, not my belief, my internal belief of me. However, uh, I just, I really think you're going to love this podcast. I know you're going to. And so go grab your journals and listen to it. If you've been thinking about doing one of these Grand Canyon retreats with us, please message me. Let's get you in. These are for men and women. They are not only for women. So uh, I just want to make sure that if this is something that you've been looking at, please reach out. Set your imposter syndrome aside that you're not good enough or that you can't or that uh, you're not worthy enough or whatever the hell it is that's holding you back. Start breaking those barriers. Really take a hold of what is making me not ask yourself, what is holding me back from living my best life? 
And within that space, you probably have an imposter syndrome of some sort of voice that is telling you something that is an untruth. It is not true at all. So reach out to me. Let's have the conversation. Sarah at SarahSheltonKranz.com. And just know that I am here for you always and forever. Go into my website if you're looking for any other amazing things to read. There's uh, great blog posts, um, an awful lot of stuff in there, online programs, uh, downloadable programs, just lots of really good things to help you on your journey too. Enjoy this episode with Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin. Dr. Orbe Austin, thank you for coming on to this podcast. We're going to dive into imposter syndrome, which is super exciting for me because I love talking about the imposter syndrome. Um, first of all, let's just start with share a little bit about who you are and uh, thank you for being here. You're so welcome, Sarah. So I am a psychologist and executive coach. I've been in practice for about 15 years, um, largely focusing on executives and managers and transition. And um, about two years ago, I wrote this book, Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life. Um, And that came out in April of 2020, um, which has a model about overcoming imposter syndrome. And then we have a new book coming out in October, also about imposter syndrome, about dealing with it in workplace cultures, um, organizational, with organizational leadership, with dealing with sort of like the context of the system. And so... That's awesome. That's so, that's so great. I love the imposter syndrome talk because, uh, well, who doesn't have it? Pretty much everybody. (laughs) 70% of people have imposter syndrome. Um, What's the percentage? 70. 70. Okay. So that's a lot. That's three quarters. That's That's a lot. And so let's, let's dive into the imposter syndrome. What is it? Let's start with that. So it's this experience when you are qualified, experienced, skilled, credentialed, have have all these things that would make you qualified, you haven't internalized them. And as a result of not internalizing them, you fear being exposed as a fraud. As a result of that fear of being exposed as a fraud, you either overwork or self-sabotage to manage that. And then as a result of that, often get chronic burnout and it can lead to kind of feelings of like constant inadequacy. And so, and feeling like you're just really trying to you know hide from everyone that you're truly incompetent. So it's a really painful experience that leaves you feeling like you're not good enough ever. Did you have it? Is that how you yes. got into this work? Okay. Yes, so it is. Tell me a little bit about your imposter syndrome because um, I've had it. And 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 then how did you use it to your benefit? Yeah, well, I think you know, I've, I've had it probably as long as I can remember. I don't ever remember feeling qualified or good enough or, or that I was you? competent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think like, you know, it probably was at its worst as I was completing my doctoral program and and, you know, I think people look at you and they think you're getting a PhD, you're getting like the ultimate educational degree. And I was getting an Ivy League institution and, you know, and it felt like the pinnacle, but I felt completely like I had fooled everyone into that slot and I didn't deserve it. So I was over-functioning and overworking and constantly burnt out, constantly feeling I had to prove myself over and over again. And I left that doctoral program really with very little left. <laughs> I, I, you know, I had a doctorate, you know, I, for years I was, I was, 
painfully afraid that I would get a phone call from Columbia saying that they were going to take my doctorate back because I'd made some mistake or some issue. Um, and so it was in a very bad place. And I think um, I ended up making some choices career-wise from that bad place of feeling insecure and not good enough. Um, and I ended up being in a toxic work environment, a very, very awful toxic work environment um, in which you know my boss was really punitive and, and really ugly with us, would yell at us in public, would try to purposely humiliate us. It was, it was really awful experience. And, you know, one afternoon, um, we were in a, a, a team, a leadership meeting of the, of the team leaders, senior leaders in the team, and it was all women. And there was music playing in the background. And, um, one of the women said, what is that music that's playing? And he said, it's music to soothe the savage breast. And I think in that one moment, I sort of realized what what an incredible impact the imposter syndrome was having on me and how it was putting me in situations where people felt free to publicly treat me like that. And I decided at, after that meeting, I was going to quit that job. And um, I called my husband. He'd been asking me to quit that job for weeks, months probably. And he said, quit. And I cleared my office out that, that weekend and Monday morning, I quit with no notice. It was really awful. He was really pathological and like told me I'd never work in the industry again, that, you know, he yelled at me, he cried. It was a very dramatic situation. But I remember walking out of that office, finally leaving his office and like my heart was pounding. I was really anxious and feeling like, what did I just do? But feeling like the, my, the rest of my life was ahead of me. And I think in that moment, I really decided that I wasn't going to live in this anymore. And I was going to really make a change um, for myself. And after having, I literally went home and had a panic attack. Um, but after having that panic attack and and really like feeling un- completely unmoored, I had not probably been without a job since I was like 12. Um, I felt frightened and I really kind of like decided I was going to really kind of choose me and like really figure this out and, and think about what I wanted, what my dreams were, what, what was the future for me and like go in that direction. And, you know, that's, that's what led me to this moment, but, um, that that's, that's what imposter syndrome did to me and, and the good thing that it, that it did for my life and how it changed my life. It, did you, did did your imposter syndrome, did she or he have a name? No, <laughs> and I, for I, a I, long time, it was unknown. I just yeah. thought it was how I felt. I just, or was true. I wasn't, I didn't belong. I wasn't good enough. I just felt like, um, I was hiding from everyone that, that, you know, I was going to be found out that I wasn't as good as everyone thought I was. Isn't that interesting? So, and okay, let's kind of back this up really quick. Can imposter syndrome, is it only for business or for life in terms of like, um, uh, career wise, because I think sometimes people no. think that imposter syndrome is only about that. Or can the imposter syndrome show up in other areas of your life as well, like relationships or in the it, within your family unit, or parenting, mom, parenting. I hear a lot of people say parenting. parenting. Yeah, yeah. I think it, can, it, it is a system of thinking, and so it can show up anywhere. It can show up anywhere where you function, where you feel like you have to be qualified to do something. Um, and I think it can show up anywhere. And oftentimes it does show up in multiple domains of your life. What happens? When yeah, I think, yeah, I think you go into what's called the imposter syndrome cycle. So you get, you don't experience imposter syndrome like a hundred percent of the time you're typically triggered for it. And typical triggers are anything new, things that are complex where there are many places to go wrong, things where you feel rusty, um, things where are highly visible. Um, and so you get triggered as a result of that trigger. You either do one of two things. You get, well, you get performance anxiety and then you either over 
function or you self-sabotage. And what self-sabotage looks like for people with imposter syndrome typically is procrastination followed by long, by intense short bursts of overwork. And so we get, we typically get the thing done because we're high performing, but we do it in very intense periods. And that often leads us to burnout as well. We then get a performance review or a review of whatever we've done. It's usually positive because we're, we're, typically competent, um, but we don't bother to internalize it. We typically will dismiss the compliments sort of saying like, um, oh, it wasn't really me or it wasn't that big of a deal or what minimizing it or, or putting it on other people. Or we get some negative feedback or some constructive feedback. And then we hyper-focus on the constructive feedback, vowing never to do that ever again and kind of getting caught in the cycle all over again. So that's typically what it looks like. Uh, and just so everybody knows, this is relational as well. Like this yeah. very relational as well. In other words, like you can have the same thing. I see it in relationships where yeah. people, where people um, in the self-sabotaging and, or with what you're yeah. thinking of. It's yeah. Like, where you don't feel good enough to be in a certain relationship. You feel, one of the, one of the hallmarks of imposter syndrome is overestimating others and underestimating yourself. So feeling like your partner is better than you or the other person's better than you and you have to overcompensate so they just stay in a relationship with you. Um, so this is, these are really common dynamics that can appear everywhere. How do you get out of the cycle or how do you, how do you manage this imposter syndrome? How do you use it? I mean, for myself, I, when my imposter syndrome comes up, um, I use it to my benefit. It's just something that I've taught myself or learned at a very young age. Uh, I grew up in a family and I think that sometimes also diving into this as well. So let's bookmark this for me having grown up in a family where I have two brothers a year, one's a year older than me, one's two years older than me, athletes, like, you know, start the football team, baseball team, just, you know, everything. And then there's the third and she's a girl and that's me. And then having to feel like, okay, how do I stand up to that? I think I used it. I learned how to use it to my benefit throughout my life. Um, and also it's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard. So let's, let's, let's dive into those two things that the dynamic of it and also like in terms of family, does that matter? Um, growing up, where you grew up, and then also how do you get out of the cycle? How yeah. do you use it? So what you're pointing to about your experience in childhood is the fact that oftentimes people say, oh, imposter syndrome came from my last job or it came from social media. It doesn't come from those places. It comes from our early childhood experiences and family dynamics. So typically when you have imposter syndrome, you come, you've been stuck in a particular role in your family. Um, some of the most common roles are either you were considered the intelligent one, the really smart one in the family who things came easy to, but when things didn't come easy, you felt like it was proof that you weren't as smart as everyone thought you were. Um, you also may have been the hardworking one. So there might be somebody else in the family that was labeled as a smart one. So you couldn't be that one. And so as a result, you're considered the hardworking one. So every, you have to get things done by grinding and doing hard work. But as a result, you never got to see your natural gifts and talents and the things that came easy to you. And then there's the last type, which is the most uh, one of the most common types, which is the survivor. So that's when you had neglect or abuse in the home and um, you you weren't being told you were the intelligent or the hardworking one. Um, and you were using your achievements to survive and get out of a circumstance. Um, and so for you, oftentimes it feels like you're one step away from losing everything. Um, and so because of the experience of that, the achievements brought you out of that place. And then if common family dynamics are um, conflict that wasn't well-managed in the family by the adults in the home. So you often felt like you had to be the good child to kind of quiet things or calm things down. Were there rigid roles in the family where it felt like you could only be one thing? There 
there wasn't a lot of opportunity to be more than one thing or people to be more than one thing in a family, where there's a high need to people please in the families and to really be pleasing to others. Um, and then, you know, no complexity in seeing people or situations. So not being able to be seen in multiple complex ways, like oftentimes if somebody got seated in a role, there couldn't be more than one, which is ridiculous. We can all hold similar kinds of roles. Um, but it, it leads us to kind of like doing this as adults and sort of getting caught in the rigid roles of imposter syndrome. But in terms of overcoming it, one of the one of the things that we talk about in the book is actually looking at those early childhood dynamics is actually the first step of overcoming it. Identifying what it looks like for you, but then understanding what happened in your early childhood ex- and family dynamics that actually led to this. And the reason why it's important is because it often mirrors the trigger in your current day life. Whatever kind of got it started is what really gets you going um, when it it comes to imposter syndrome. And what we believe and what we've seen to be true is that you don't have to live with it forever, Um, that it can be a very temporary state, but it takes work to overcome it. Um, And, you know, I think the goal is to overcome it. The goal is not to kind of keep it in your life forever because it is correlated to incredibly toxic things like anxiety, depression, burnout, um, feelings of chronic uh, organizational loyalty, all kinds of really toxic things for yourself. So it's really the, the goal is to really overcome it. It's not like you'll never be triggered for it. You will be triggered. But the idea is to use the tools that you can help you to not get caught in the cycle. So you might get triggered, but you may may not do the behaviors that engage that cycle. Um, and so that's what we talk about. And so the, the piece around sort of understanding the roots is important. Understanding your triggers is important. Um, being able to understand the narrative, how you talk about yourself and your accomplishments and your skills to other people, how you talk about it to yourself, things like challenging automatic negative thoughts that are triggered as a result of, of the imposter syndrome, your self-care habits, thinking about the roles that you show up and diversifying them and building community around you. Those are some of the tools that, that we talk about in the book that have been shown in research to really change the game. So can you have, you, you talked about the different, um, the different stage or the different types of where the, where it shows up in early childhood. Can you have more than one? Yes. Yeah. You can have totally more than one. And oftentimes people do you have, can have more all than of them. one experience. You can have all of them. You can have just a couple of them, but typically people identify with, um, some of the dynamics that are engaging in early childhood pretty, pretty clearly. They can, they can pinpoint, oh, I had that, or I experienced that. And I think oftentimes it's really helpful for people to be like, this thing didn't come out of nowhere. Um, In some ways it was cultivated in me, not purposefully, accidentally, completely, usually. Um, And that, you know, it is also overcomable because this was cultivated and it was environmental. I can also change it. Um, And so I think that's a really empowering idea for people to really realize you don't have to live with this forever. Because I think a lot of the vernacular around it, a lot of talk around it is like, you're going to have it forever. And I, I don't believe it. And I've actually seen it and I've lived it. Um, to not live in it anymore. I don't live in it at all anymore in the ways that I once did. Yeah, it's, I think it's really interesting too. And it's uh, being able to see it as, look, because so many times we go back to our childhood and we think, oh my God, like my childhood, do I have to go back to my childhood? Do I have to look at that? And then we point blame at certain people or our parents or our community or whatever it is. But just remember, and just remember that everybody, like nobody's perfect. Family dynamics are not perfect. They are meant to learn. Very rarely are they ever. When are they ever perfect? When are they ever perfect, right? (laughs) And frankly, when someone gives, as a psychologist, when someone tells me they've had a perfect childhood, it makes me more scared 
than ever. Oh, yeah. Because that's never true. It's never true. It's never true. And I think that that's the beauty of it as well, being able to look at our childhood and looking at our family dynamics and saying, okay, well, this is, I was born into this. This is what I was handed. And this is what I'm going to learn from to grow and become an even more of a, a better human being um, from that space. And so it bugs me when people, label it as like, yeah. oh, you know what I mean? Like it just bugs me. And I yeah, I and when people sort of idea the idea is that it's about blame. It's not, it's about, not blame. about blame. It's about <laughs> understanding. It's about change. It's about really learning from the past so it doesn't get replicated another generation down because what you do not learn from you will repeat. Um and then in essence like then your children will go through the same exact circumstances you did. Right. Um and so like it's so important that that we really that we do look back so we can learn from it and do something different. Yeah. It, it, it is not about blame. Like that is no. a really big thing here because so many times we want to project and blame and it's not about blame. It's about owning it and yeah. choosing you differently. Moving yeah. On. And you're not learning when you're blaming. There's right. just, I mean, it's not a, you're not going to gain much from that, except you're going to feel like, you know, you, you can point to who, who did you wrong. And, and yes, there's a, there's a point part of this that is a really, there's a part of our book that we deal with around the issues of like forgiveness, because there is a part of like this, that is really about the forgiveness as the method of level, um, so that you can actually really be able to move on. And if you can't forgive, it becomes really hard to let go. Um, and you get stuck. You're talking my jam space right now. Yeah. So, so how do you bring your literally like that is my jam space. Forgiveness is like the, my, my, my love, my, my alter ego. <laughs> I love it. Dive it's actually the, the forgiveness piece of our book is actually the hardest part of the book. Everyone who's gone through it says that it's the really, it's the point. And if you can't get over that piece of the book, you get stuck at that part of the book. You can't move on. Um, and I, but I think it is also the most transformative part of the book, um, because when people actually do the work and can actually forgive something just awakens in them that really like changes the game. It's as almost they've become alive for the first time. It's just the most beautiful thing to watch and to see the power of it. You know, that like literally forgiveness is my jam. Like I freaking <laughs> love talking about that. I can see why yeah. <laughs> it is it transformative. Is. It's so transformative. And so how do you use, to, let's dive into that part of the book. Let's, let's, let's talk about that because, you know, I did a Ted talk on forgiveness and it's been oh, literally the, yeah, it literally is. I'm not joking. My jam space. <laughs> um, it literally has been the piece of my life that has, where I've been able to step into it using this practice every single day. And transforming the deepest pain into now talking about it and speaking about it and and using it and sharing it and teaching it and witnessing other people go through their forgiveness journey. How do you define it and how do you use it within your the spectrum of what we're talking about, which is imposter syndrome? Yeah, I think, you know, in the book, we use it uh, at the part of the book where we talk about, I, I you know I mentioned that your early childhood dynamics lead to the triggers. We do it in the triggers chapter. And, and I think it's because part of our triggers is, are around sort of a lack of forgiveness. The reason what gets us set off, what gets us repeating these dynamics is around these, these, these forgiveness pieces. And so we ask people to, in the book, to write a letter. And typically when we've done, done this particular exercise in our work, it's typically called the angry letter. Um, but in this, in the book, we call it the expressive letter. Cause we didn't want to say everyone just feels anger, but typically we call it the angry letter, but in the book, it's called the expressive letter. And we ask people to write a stream of consciousness letter 
to and each of them has to be individualized. If they write it to more than one person, each one has to be individualized about the things specific to their imposter syndrome, whether it was the anger that was unmanaged in the family or whether it was caught being caught in a specific role. The specific things about imposter syndrome that you're that you're upset about that you feel like contributed to it. And we tell them to write everything, write in stream of consciousness. It doesn't have to make sense, it doesn't have to be sequential, but it has to kind of really talk about what it feels like to have experienced those things. And then at the very, and then we tell them to write till there's nothing left to say or to start repeating it in circles. And then we ask them to close with a, with a, um, a statement of forgiveness. And so that statement of forgiveness can look as, as however they want it to look, as long as they're saying that they forgive them and that they're, they're working on a process of letting go. Um, what's, and then I'll, I'll tell you the rest and then I'll go back to that piece. But the, then we ask them to read it out loud to somebody who will just listen to them and hear them and not judge them in any part of the letter, will not comment at all. Um, and then they are to destroy it. And, and then they have to destroy it in some method. Um, and so what we find is that people know how to write the letter, although it is very painful for them and often really hard and very emotional, but they forget the forgiveness. <laughs> Typically they'll be like, and, and I didn't write the forgiveness piece. I'm not ready yet. Well, and then the letter's not complete. You have right. to get to the place where you can forgive and let go. Um, and so they don't, they, they sometimes will hesitate on that piece of it. And the other place they hesitate is sometimes after writing it and doing all this stuff and, and really taking the energy and time to do this, they don't want to let go of the letter. And so, and the letting go and the burning or destroying or cutting or whatever they do of the letter is so important. And oftentimes they just want to, they want to be like, I worked so hard on this. And it felt like, it felt like the, for the first time I was and ever, I was seen. And so I don't want to let go of it. And I, and I often say to them, like, the letter doesn't make you seen. You will make yourself seen now. Like it is, it is the process that you're going through. The letter itself does not represent being seen. You are now in a different space to be seen in a different light. And so. And That's. Awesome. I love, I love the fact of, I love that, the honesty around, but then they forget that forgiveness part. Because <laughs> yes. people do. They they <laughs> they really do forget the forgiveness part. That's the important part of it. It's yeah. about it's about choosing to do differently next time, right? Yeah. And also being able to use the pain and transform it, transcend it into something so much more powerful yeah. than the pain that you were holding on to for so long. Yeah, it is like, like you said transformative like the yes. things that they are capable of doing afterwards blows my mind and i can i can see what they're capable of but i it's sometimes beyond what i could have even imagined um when they can let go of the pain and and they often tell them that the forgiveness is for you it is yeah. not to absolve the other person it's not to say that they were okay to do what they were or to condone any of it, it the forgiveness is for you you know it's not to absolve them yeah well and it also creates uh it creates relationships, that internal relationship with self yeah. that is so much more powerful where you're not actually holding on to or listening to that internal dialogue that's not even yours, by the way. This dialogue that was handed to you that you're not good enough or or that you know you can't step into this relationship or you can't take on that career or who are you to say that you could get on stage or whatever the hell it is. That's yeah. not your dialogue, by the way. That's an <laughs> internal dialogue that was handed to you. That's truly not you because yeah. you know who you are. And so being able to release that dialogue that is not yours to hold and say, okay, I forgive you for saying this to me. Don't believe it any longer because it's not me. Being able to release that is one of the most powerful and empowering things that you can yeah. actually do. Like I yeah. never thought I'd be freaking standing on stage. That was not my, that like 
peeps, like I actually had the, the dialogue handed to me that literally, like I heard from some very, very special people in my life that I, <laughs> I'll give you the exact words. The exact phrase that was told to me was, you think you're so great, you're not. And those are, that was the exact phrase that was handed to me by some very, um, very loving humans that did not love themselves mm-hmm. in that moment. Yeah. And so when people hand you their dialogue, which is exactly what was done to me, I can now look back at it through my own forgiveness journey and see it as their own internal pain that they could not process at that moment. What they were literally saying to me in that moment was, I think I'm so great. I'm not. Yeah. It wasn't me right? It was not me that actually thought I was so great. I'm not. It was their own internal dialogue saying to me that they think they're so great, but they're not. And Mm -hmm. so driven by their own uh, addictions, different things that was actually that they were going through at that time. Now, understand that for my, through my own forgiveness journey and being able to see it for what it is and being able to hold it for what it is and release it for what it was not, because it's not mine, right? it actually strengthened that internal relationship with myself, but also allowed me to love and see that person, those people who have said those words to me in a different kind of way, with compassion, with grace, with understanding, with humanizing the experience, because we all have our own shit, right? We all have our own shit. And so, and if we don't work it, it becomes other people's shit. We put it on other people. Exactly. That, and that's exactly what had happened here. And had I have chosen to listen to those words and lived and walked in those words instead of my own internal power, I wouldn't have done the forgiveness talk on, you know, the Ted talk. There's so many, I wouldn't have written the book. I wouldn't be having this podcast. I wouldn't like, I think about the, what wouldn't happen if I would have chosen to listen to that internal dialogue that was given to me, that actually wasn't mine. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And so where in your life, all of you listening, are you doing that same thing? Where are you not stepping into that space of, I always call it the victim, the survivor, the thriver. Where are you choosing? Where are you not stepping into that space of the thriver? Because you're still holding on to that internal dialogue, which has become a part of your own, you know, uh, uh, narrative, narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to totally agree with with you and in, in the sense that, you know, that, um, it becomes your own inter- internalized dialogue. You don't even, until you kind of look for the origins of where it came from, sometimes you've come to own it as if it's true. Meanwhile, it's not true. And maybe it, is, it wasn't even true for the person who even spewed it to you, but they got spewed to, 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 it, it really is such an important thing. One of the things that I often see is that when people, people often are like, I don't want to forgive them when I still have to deal with them because they're still doing the thing. Right. But one of the things that I have seen is that when they can let go of it, the, when the, the person does engage and say the things or the thing that, that really kind of helped them feel small or less significant or whatever it is, they're able to set better boundaries around it. They're able to not internalize it in the same way they once did. And even though they may be doing the same thing, your response to the same thing isn't the same. Um, it is a much more uh, empowered stance around sort of what they're saying and how it is getting into you or not. My thing is go ahead, feed my fire. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. 
just l- throw some more gas on my fire. <laughs> I mean, why not? I'm using it. That flame's yes. become that fuel. Flame has become my fuel, exactly. Yeah. And so, and that's why in my book, I also talk about boundaries when we're setting, when we're actually stepping into forgiveness, you have to have the boundaries. Yes. Because also the boundaries create more of the self-love and self-worthiness, which also then creates yeah. a healthy dialogue with self, a healthy narrative, a healthy story yeah. for self. And, and they create so, safety. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's such a beautiful thing. So let's keep diving in uh, into how do people continue to step out of um, that internal dialogue and into a healthy narrative for self so that they're not yeah. owning. Now, I got to tell you, I, I actually, when I was going through this process, I actually named, uh, for me, it was a her, my, um, my saboteur or my, you know, that space. Uh, I don't even remember though what I named her. That's what's really funny. <laughs> I've forgotten her. I've forgotten her that much. That's excellent. <laughs> and literally, I remember though going through this journey and 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 naming my saboteur, like naming that person within me. And I don't even remember what I named her. I have to go back <laughs> into my journal and find it. Yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> That's that is great and actually probably meaningful that you've forgotten her. Seriously, um, I'm like, I mean, I think oh. the the thing you're pointing to is something that we do talk about in the book about um, externalizing. And so um, this idea of ha- naming her as a form of externalizing, it's not me, it's this. I can sort of say, say that. And that it becomes easier to fight it when it's outside of you. And so we talk about that in a section of the book about automatic negative thoughts, that the automatic negative thoughts, when they're triggered, are things like, I'm so stupid. How did I make that mistake? Mm-hmm. What's wrong with me? Um, and, and these kinds of automatic negative thoughts that we teach you how to label, like, are they, you know a labeling ant, automatic negative thought, are they a mind reading? What, what are you doing? By labeling it, you can externalize it. And you gave it a name, right? The labeling, the naming of allows you to externalize it and then also challenge it. So you, so I made a mistake and I'm awful. Well, what other evidence is there that I'm awful? Where are there details that are coming in, data that are coming in that I am awful? And actually looking for that data. And if you can't actually prove that the automatic negative thought is correct, then why are we still holding it? And then it needs to be countered with a more accurate, reality-based kind of thought that is actually real. So I made a mistake. I'm human. Overall, the presentation went well and people are actually giving me good feedback about it. So really being able to contextualize it and and thicken the narrative around what we talk to ourselves about with this perfectionistic kind of imposter-driven mindset that doesn't allow us to just be human um, and really is critical of us at every turn. Where does the ego come in or does it? Well, when we think of ego as, as a psychologist, I think of ego as a healthy thing. I think of ego as I and self. Um, right. I don't think of it as like how it's vernacular, like how people say oh, you're full of ego. That is like a, a probably misuse of what ego means. But I think ego means self. And in essence, the whole process in dealing with imposter syndrome is really going back and finding the ego, finding the sense of self, finding a sense of who I am as separate from other people's opinions of me. Um, what, what do I want for myself? What do I dream of? What does success look like for me? It's a redefinition of that because so much of what imposter syndrome is driven by is the superego what I should do, what other people want for me, how, you know, how should I show up? What are, what are people saying? We're so externally driven trying to be what everyone wants us to be. We lose track of the ego. We lose track of the self. And then that is what we're trying to rediscover as we work on, you know, as we work on it, both the, the, the ego piece and also the id pieces to think about what are our wants, what are our desires? What are the things we, we lose track of that 
when we're so caught up in this other place where we're just concerned with what other people want from us. Is this something that is like a long journey to let this imposter syndrome go? Or is this, is this something that doesn't have to be that hard? I mean, it, it, <laughs> this is an yeah, interesting question. Like that. You're I like, think it's oh, both. I, 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 <laughs> I think it, it is hard. There's no doubt about it. Looking at your, you're looking at your past and kind of dealing with these things is difficult, um, but it doesn't have to be long. Um, and so we've been able to track through our work and our and our own study of it is that it takes about 12 to 14 weeks if you do the work in the book. It's outlined in a programmatic fashion, like a step-by-step fashion with exercises and things right. like that. It doesn't take long. And we've been able to show a 30% decrease over the in imposter syndrome scores um, over those 12 to, 12 to 14 weeks. So it, it can be remedied pretty quickly. But anybody who's done the work knows it's not a party. You know, it's it's hard. Um, and so, and it, but in my own experience, anything that has been worth kind of being transformative has been hard at moments. Um, and, you know, we know when we have imposter syndrome, we know how to work hard. That's not a problem for us. We know how to kill ourselves, but this is a different type of work. This is work for us, not work right. for someone else. Right. Right. And does d- the amount of trauma that people have lived through, does that impact or does that, does that, yes. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, it will lengthen it because there will be other things that are are connected to it. There will be other besides a clean experience of like, oh, it's just imposter syndrome. It might there might be other things there. And so in those cases where there are other things there, and as you're working on it, it evokes those other things that are unresolved. This is when I really strongly suggest people find a therapeutic support in the process of really dealing with the trauma. Um, because this is, you know, tra- overcoming trauma, you know, requires sometimes a guided hand and helping you to kind of move through the next stages of it. And that, that guided hand can teach you skills and tools that will make it forever different. You know, have you found that people that have lived through, this is like so freaking, this conversation is just like jam spacing with me right now. Have you found (laughs) that people that have lived through trauma have more imposter syndrome or have you found that that's not the case? The research hasn't shown that there's been a that there's a correlation between like a trauma history and a, a guaranteed experience of imposter syndrome because the trauma history has to in some ways then form some of those patterns that I talked about earlier. You have to you know have a couple of those different things that have gone on um, for you to be able to kind of like also have imposter syndrome. Some people who have trauma don't have imposter syndrome. Uh, that's not a part of their constellation of, of experiences. Um, but I th- I do think like if it is it if it is correlated to some of these early experiences about anger and conflict not well managed in the family and all, you know, and these ideas about the way the parents show up. And if there, if there's connection there, then oftentimes there's, but that doesn't have trauma doesn't necessarily equal imposter syndrome. Um, it can be there, but it's not necessarily direct correlate, like a direct causation. Thing. Right. So 70% of the people have imposter syndrome. Do you, have you found that high executives or you, you work with executives, have you found mm-hmm. that high executives or have you found that uh, leaders, like a lot of leaders, have you found that they are more prone to, prone to imposter syndrome or who are the people? Yeah. I think oftentimes people will say to me, like, isn't it an early career phenomenon? Like when you just don't know what you're doing, you feel like you're an imposter. 
And actually, the data doesn't show that. The data shows no cohort effects in the sense that it's not a younger person's thing, that you can actually be an executive and have imposter syndrome. And what we find is that if you don't deal with it, it trails you throughout your career. And so, yes, I happen to see a lot of executives and managers with um, imposter syndrome because of what I do. They're drawn to my work. Um, I don't think every single executive well, imposter, right. yeah, has imposter syndrome because you know the other side of that, people often ask me, what is the other 30%? And the other 30% of people who, a combination of people who have never experienced imposter syndrome, who don't have, don't have a reference point for it, that's not their experience, um, who have recovered from imposter syndrome, and also people who um, have Dunning-Kruger. And you know, a fair amount of people, executives have Dunning-Kruger, which is the opposite, which is that you feel like you're an expert when you're not. Um, ah. And so there's a whole bunch of other people out there that you know feel like they're amazing and perhaps they are they need some more work than that. Um, and so I, I think there are other ways of showing up that, you know, that executives show up in that may not necessarily be the imposters, but there are some that do. Can you, so have you found that having imposter syndrome can actually make you more successful? No, there's no data to suggest that. Uh, this is something, some, the, some pretty out there and famous psychologists talk about and that makes you successful and leads to greater motivation. And it's not true. There's no data to date that shows in the 40 years of research that shows that you are you are where you're at because of imposter syndrome. You are where you are at because you are experienced, credentialed, skilled, amazing. That's why you're where you are. You're not there because imposter syndrome makes you filled with doubt. In, actu- in actuality, the research shows that you're likely to be more dissatisfied in your job. You're likely to be more anxious. You're likely to have all these negative consequences as a result of the imposter syndrome. Because one of the things that I often see is that people say to me, um, I'm not gonna, I don't want to let it go because the reason I'm successful is because I because I have it. No, you can let it go, and your success is monumentally probably going to benefit from letting it go. Because the other thing that we see too with people who have imposter syndrome is that, and this is research-based too, is that they tend to undervalue themselves and as a result, don't ask for what they deserve whether it's around salary, promotion, advancement, they tend to be underperforming and underpaid because of their value of themselves. So you will do better without it than you will with, with it. Or have healthier and have healthier relationships. <laughs> and all that. Yeah. And all that. And all that. And all that. More happy, more joy, more, yes. more everything. We're just not holding on to the shit, as I like to yes. say. Exactly. Um, because pain is something that trails you when you don't take a look at it and take care of it. So yes. there, and it shows up in every area of your life. That's the thing is that, and I, and I love the fact that you brought that up is that imposter syndrome can be something that it's, it's not simply for business, which is what I think so many people think of. It's like, it's holding you back in your success career wise. No, it's yeah. in every area of your life. It can be. So, yeah. uh, so we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, what I want to ask you though, is let's dive into an area within this work that has been most surprising for you. Hmm, right? Um, yeah. I got, I got, a, I got, I got a few good ones right now and then that <laughs> pop into me. I'm like, what has been most surprising? I mean, every journey has surprises. And I think that um, what I have found is that in the surprises, the curiosity of that, right? It's like, where can we get a little bit more curious about also the surprising things that we have found? And share. Yeah. So what what has been most surprising? I think even it's something you were just referring. Well, I mean, even, in terms even of my own your, life, right. it doesn't both and or in terms of my own life, what imposter syndrome professionally did for my own life, like it 
blew my own career up in, a, in the most lovely of amazing of ways. Like, and I just get to touch so many people and help them realize what they're dealing with and help them change that. That and at a large scale has just been awesome. Um, because after I went through it myself, I, I remember feeling like I don't ever want someone to ever have to deal with what I'm feeling or have to deal with the situation that I was in. I really want to free as many people as possible. So it's given me an opportunity to free as many people as I can get my hands on. So it that feels pretty awesome. But I will say one of the things we were just pointing to that has been surprising to me is we, you know, we have a masterclass where we run people through the program. And one of the things that has come out toward the end is when they have done the work, how much their relationships have changed. And that was not what they came to focus on. What they came to focus on was the way that it showed up in their workplace and their careers. And at the end, the stories that they tell me about their partners, their children, the, it, it's just, it just, it just melts my heart in a way that I just feel so grateful because it feels like the work is expanding. Like it's not just them who have changed, but you know, I remember a story that somebody who um, went through the master class said like that they, so their particular issue was that they were overworking and overfunctioning, putting in like 70 to 80 hours a week at work. Um, and part of their goal for the group was to kind of work less, take, take a vacation and take a vacation in like years and years and years. They had like, they had so much vacation. It was unable to be taken. It was just so much. And so they took a vacation around uh, the holidays and, um, they took the time off and, and their partner had come, they were in the bedroom, I guess, you know, getting ready for the day. And their partner had come to the bedroom and closed the door behind them and said, okay, you can tell me, have you been fired? Like you're acting so strangely, like you're <sighs> home. Like they're like, you can tell me what's going on. And, and he, he started laughing and he was like, no, I haven't been, I haven't been fired. I just want to live my life differently. And she's like, I like it, but I'm scared. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, that is just like one of those moments, I think that, you know, it's so transformative to come overcome this because you just start living differently. Um, and you respond to people and you're like, you know, he was just like, I really feel sad about the way that I've, you know, like lost time with my children. And I was like, I don't want to lose another minute. And it just like, it enlivened his life. And it was just sort of beautiful. And it's just one of the experiences that, you know, we've had around that piece that that's not the intention, the, the stuff is we're working on is very concretely around work, but the, the relational changes are so beautiful and so exciting and, and feel so positive that, that that's been a really lovely piece of it and a lovely surprise. Well, and how, I mean, think about, had you not gone through that experience, which must've been very painful for you yeah. and then decided to step into this so that others don't feel or experience what you did where they don't have to, they can actually work and walk through it themselves. What a beautiful gift that yeah. your own imposter syndrome has given yeah. to so many other people. Yeah. I've, I've, I felt that like, in essence, it was me talking about my own imposter syndrome that got me the book in the first place. I had been blogging about imposter syndrome and talking about it and an editor had come upon it. They wanted to write a book on imposter syndrome and they asked me if I would write it. Um, and it was because I had been talking about it. And, and I think that that piece has been incredibly healing to me in a lot of ways, because it was a very traumatic moment in my life. And I did get wonderful things that came out of it, you know, by starting my practice and doing all kinds of other things, but it, it just felt like, um, it has had more meaning as a result of the fact that it can change other people's experience, that it, it really has given that particular dark moment in my life, complete like meaning. Were you a writer when you started blogging and stuff? No, I, I, you know, it's funny because I actually was an English major in college and um, had a super traumatic experience in my senior year where I had a really, I was taking a, like a seminar class and a, the professor was like, 
bashing my writing and saying I was an awful writer and I even wanted to be a writer. Um, and so I decided to totally change my career path as a result of that and go into psychology at that experience. And then I ended up starting my master's program back in the city in which I went to college and went to a bookstore to wonder what that particular professor was writing about. And she'd actually stolen my story. Um, and in it, yeah. My, and I was with my sister in the time in a bookstore and she was like, is this happening? I was like, I was like, I think it's happening. I think I'm awake. (laughs) Um, and, but I think it was because my path was meant to go in another direction. And it's a direction I'm very happy with, but, and I've gotten to write. I never thought I would, after that period, I thought I never thought I would write again, not, not like that, you know, not for public consumption, maybe academically, but it's, it's been, um, it's been a really, it's been healing on so many different levels to kind of really, to really do the work on myself and then to really be able to share that work with other people. Yeah. I never set out to be a writer. I remember when I was 17 driving down the road and I had this like intuitive hit that all of what I was going to be walking through or had been walking through at that age was going to have a reason it was going to have meaning for me. And then, you know, that was 17. And I thought, write a book. What the hell? Like I'm in (laughs) art school. I'm going to be a teacher. Like, I don't, I don't, girl don't write, you know, (laughs) I read a lot, but I didn't write. And we had no writers in our family. And then all of a sudden, you know, 42 years old, 40, 41, I went through that whole experience and I thought, oh, this is why I didn't write the book at 17. Yeah. I go through all of these other chapters in order to learn and grow and, and heal myself. Yeah. Um, and then the book came. And I remember my mom saying to me, where did you, where did you learn how to write? My mom and dad, my dad, they, he still says this to me too. He's like, where did you, I, I wrote my mom's obituary. Um, and so when, when she passed, it was one of the things that they said to me on the phone when we were FaceTiming that morning was, well, guess who gets to write the obit? And I thought, <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Um, and I, and it, and it was a beautiful process for me because here I was never thought I was going to be a writer and using my creative space to write something that was so meaningful and held so yeah, much to capture her life. Yeah. Her life. Yeah. You captured your own first through the book and then captured hers. And like, that's just a beautiful thing. It really is. And it goes also back to just remember that, you know, we all have had, I don't want to say all, apparently not everybody. I thought everybody <laughs> had imposter syndrome. 70% of us have imposter syndrome. <laughs> and I have had it too. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's quite the journey to walk through. Yeah. But like, like you're sort of alluding to, it can be life-changing to overcome it, like to really decide that you just don't want to live with it anymore and to make the steps, you know, to kind of really take care of yourself. Like something my husband always said to me when I was going through imposter syndrome, which I had trouble internalizing. He said, when you work as hard for others, as, as you work hard, when you work as hard for yourself as you do for others, you're going to be unstoppable. And I didn't even know what that meant. I, like, even though the words are very simple, I couldn't understand what they meant. But when I learned how to work for myself, like I showed up for others, it was just transformative and to really kind of open yourself up for that. And we're going to end there because those words are exactly what I just needed to hear too. So thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Any other last piece of nugget or good information mm. or tool tip, trick, something that's helped you in your life in any area of your life, not only this? I mean, I think one of the things that's helped me in my life has been to be counterphobic. Um, I didn't really mention this, but one of the things that, um, the ways that imposter shows up differently for men and women um, can be um, 
different. It shows up different. One of the ways that it shows up for women is by being counterphobic. So we tend to be counterphobic. We actually face the thing we fear. As a result, we're triggered more often for the imposter syndrome. I think, you know, being counterphobic and actually facing the thing that I feared has really transformed my life. And I, I regularly get into the practice of facing things that I fear um, because that comfort zone can be a very dangerous place to be. But I, I really like to kind of really challenge myself to grow constantly. So I think that's been something that's been really powerful for me. To really embrace that in a positive way. Yes. Yeah, I do that same. That's interesting. Okay, so can I ask you then, how do men, how do men? Yeah. So for men, yeah. and this is just and like cisgender men. I'm not, now I'm really curious about this. So <laughs> how, does yeah. the, how does this, what's the difference? So what they find in the research is that men tend to aim toward mastery and as a result, take less risks. And so they can sometimes be underperforming as a result of that. They tend to pursue things, they tend to pursue certain careers less often when they have imposter syndrome, like uh, STEM careers. So they tend to really want to master something and that affects their ability actually to take risks and to be able to grow um, in their careers. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, which is why they always say, I think the, the myth around women, only women experience it. I think just men are being triggered less often because of what imposter syndrome does to them. It makes them want to hide and just get good at something particular they know to be good at, but then don't challenge themselves to the next level. Wow. This could open up a whole nother conversation <laughs> regarding everything from relationships to parenting to, I mean, everything that's yeah. fascinating. <laughs> so, okay. So would you come back on again someday? Sure, absolutely. This is like, this could be a 10 hour conversation. <laughs> uh, so where can people find you? Sure. So I'm, I'm most probably active on um, link, uh, LinkedIn. I'm a LinkedIn top voice there. Um, so I'm chatting on LinkedIn and also um, on Instagram at Dr. Orbe Austin. Um, so I'm pretty active in those spaces. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you for being here and You're I so appreciate welcome. your time. Cannot wait to continue this conversation. It was a joy. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. My friends, thank you for listening to the Live Boldly podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am so grateful to have you here. I'd love to invite you over to sarahschultingkranz.com to receive five free meditations recorded by me or download your free guide on how nature is your perfect healing therapy. My site has many free resources to guide you on your life journey, many that I used myself while on my road from victim to survivor. And also, please, I ask that you share my podcast with those who may need inspiration, information, or who may need to hear from others going through where they are right now. To grow this podcast, please leave an iTunes review and subscribe. Go find it on other platforms such as Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please also go to my Instagram or Facebook page, leave a message in my comments, and tell me what you think of this episode. Please share in your stories and tag me. I'd love to reshare and celebrate your healing journey. I love hearing from each one of you. Let's keep the ripple going. It begins with each one of us. I love you. And as I always say, I believe in you, us, always. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.